Hello and welcome to episode number 29 of the Chris Knight Podcast. Today on the show I have Brett Jones who is the head of Strong First Company which specialises in kettlebell strength and conditioning. On the show today I spoke to Brett about movement screening, uh, movement patterns and why kettlebells are so brutally effective in getting you both fit and strong. Brett himself has an extensive knowledge in uh, kettlebell training and in this podcast you'll learn how to get the most out of the implement and how to screen and assess people to get them moving as best as they can. So today on the show, we've got the first edition of a kettlebell-specific uh, podcast. Uh, we have Brett Jones. Brett, how are you today? Fabulous, Chris. It's uh, wonderful to have the opportunity to be on and to speak to you and your audience. Brilliant. And uh, whereabouts in the world are you today? I am in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Right, okay. And um, what is it that um, you're doing? Uh, how did you get into the Strong First Company? Wow. Uh, Long story kept medium. Uh, I uh, went to Pavel's second ever workshop in the States in February of 2002 to learn about kettlebells. And then uh, a year later, I was asked to come on board and be one of the, uh, what at that time was called a senior instructor. So that was 2003. Mm. And so for the last 14 years, I've been traveling the US and the world uh, teaching uh, kettlebells and and Pavel's methods, which is now strong first, mm. uh, for like I said, fourteen years now. Wow! And what are the? Uh, did you have a sporting background and lifting background before that? I'm guessing you did. Um... Uh, a bit. I was a, high, a wrestler in high school, mm. and and then uh, I my um, bachelor's degree is in uh, athletic training, sports medicine, right. so orthopedic evaluation, rehabilitation, mm. and so I hit a hit a time frame where I was not very fit. Mm. And then got back into training and um, transitioned from being an athletic trainer into being a personal trainer. Mm. Um, and during that time, uh, you know, ramped up all of my lifting again and things like that. And I got one of Pavel's first books, Power to the People, mm. which was all about deadlift and side press and, and a very simplified strength training uh, protocol. Mm. And then uh, then got interested in kettlebells and pursued that. Oh, wow. So what would you say is different about kettlebell training to other implement, uh, other types of training? So simplest way to put it is the, the deceptively simple design of the kettlebell uh, cannonball with a handle on it, mm. uh, it provides a thick handle and offset center of mass. Mm. So when you pick up a dumbbell or a barbell, the center of mass is with your hands. And, um, but with a kettlebell, the center mass is six to eight inches below your hand. Mm. So for things like swings and snatches, cleans, the weight is more alive, uh, in your hand, mm-hmm. uh, for things like get ups and presses, the offset center of mass up to a certain point mm. can actually help guide you into better, uh, positions. So there's benefits just to the, the, the design of the tool. But then because we're able to, as I like to joke, you can only swing a barbell between your legs once, uh, then you'll decide that was a bad idea. Uh, with the kettlebell, we achieve a very unique uh, loaded eccentric, mm. uh, dynamic eccentric where we have to um, redirect 
our force uh, from uh, from the, the top position, from the hip extension down into the the loaded hinge. Uh, when I'm on a force plate, swing a um, 24 kilo bell with two hands. Mm. I can produce between three to three and a half times body weight eccentric load at the bottom of that movement. Right. And then I have to redirect that into the next hip extension. So we actually, in a very unique way, train a lot of uh, deceleration and redirection of force uh, in a very quick dynamic fashion. Uh, so the ballistics uh, come with this kind of added benefit of this unique uh, loaded eccentric. Mm. And would you say that kettlebell training is like no other because of the different movements and the, uh, the transfer it has to the compound lifts? I uh, I do. Uh, now I'm obviously biased. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I really like this thing. I've mm. invested a significant portion of my life and career into uh, teaching this. Mm. And but I but I really do think that um, the the ease of uh, learning the lifts. Mm. Uh, gives it a leg up on a lot of other techniques, mm. and uh, it it does have a. We used to refer to it, and still refer to it as the WTH, the what the hell effect, mm. uh, from starting to do kettlebell training and then being better at a variety of other things that maybe mm. you haven't even been practicing. Yeah. So I, I do think that's great carryover. I think it's stuff like the the traditional, um, very associated with kettlebell movements, such as like a windmill and a get-up. They're very good for obviously core conditioning, but it's also the stabilization effect they have on the shoulders. The, the carryover for a lot of um, compound lifts, such as bench and overhead pressing, is quite substantial, isn't it? It is. Uh, just between the get-up and, and pressing, like I said, that offset center of mass really as we do arm bars and get-ups and things like that, we really kind of address the shoulder mm. uh, and the midsection from so many different angles mm. uh, that it really does help shore, shore up people's uh, stabilization and strength. Mm. And the, the Strong First company itself, uh, one thing that I'm a massive fan of is, is the simplicity in the approach. They're all about you know the five threes and two reps and the volume. Um, could you summarize basically the, the principles of either pr- and programming and, and program design that Strong First carries? So we, we look at, um, from, from a very simple standpoint, we feel that strength is a master quality, a uh, quote from Metviev, uh, where you know, all other physical qualities are dependent upon uh, strength. Mm. And so between our grinds and our ballistics within the kettlebell section, because mm. strong first is also, uh, we have a barbell uh, workshop and certification mm-hmm. uh, via SFL. We have a body weight. Uh, workshop and certification via SFB. Mm. Um, all of those focused on developing um, uh, good strength qualities. And so we do keep things simple. Um, we look for a continuity of the training process. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to get uh, distracted by the fad of the day or the uh, the the idea that we need um, confusion or endless variety because we've, quote, adapted to an exercise. Uh, we're going to maintain that continuity of the training process, identify weak links, and provide um, exercises and, and things to shore up uh, those weak links. Mm. But, um, you know, keeping things um, – and then so a couple of popular training uh, variables – uh, Pavel popularized something called Grease the Groove, mm. uh, where you practice small, um, frequently, but never to failure mm. uh, throughout the day. Uh, so for things like pull-ups, push-ups, uh, even 
presses and snatches um, can be very effective at increasing strength. And we look at strength as a skill. Mm. So we look to practice and uh, uh, whatever that lift may be, uh, swing, snatches, presses, um, we look to uh, enhance the skill of that uh, for very much a neurologically or CNS-based approach where we're looking at refining that um, the neurological aspect of strength. Uh, Pavel's, uh, a lot of his original stuff and coming out of the military himself, uh, there were times where adding large amounts of muscle mass were not of benefit. Um, most rock climbers are smaller individuals because it's easier to haul yourself up a rock face if you don't weigh 250 pounds. Uh, for a lot of soldiers, um, you're quicker uh, and more effective as, a, as an operator uh, when you're not uh, uh, overly large uh, individual. Uh, now, all of our, our techniques can be tweaked for hypertrophy as well, but a lot of what people would be familiar with were, was more based on optimizing uh, body weight to strength ratios uh, for efficiency and performance. So it's basically, is that it, it's almost like a fad word, but it's true. It's this functional strength, which is used um, sometimes incorrectly in the industry, but it's what kettlebells provide. Is it someone have the athleticism, the power, uh, the dynamic ability and the mobility to perform well at their uh, discipline? Um, it's, is that why they're so, um, well, seem to be popular from my perspective in uh, um, mixed, mixed martial arts and uh, fighting sports? Very much so. Um, it is when when you're swinging and snatching and doing get ups and things of that nature. Uh, the the um, we had uh, someone, and I, I'm going to blank here, and I'm not going to get this 100 percent right. But it was either a special forces or a um, a fighter of some sort who referred to kettlebell training as the closest thing you can do uh, without closest thing to fighting as you can do without getting hit. Mm. Uh, so uh, a lot of our force production uh, techniques uh, in our ballistics and things like that mm. uh, and, and the, the power we develop in the hips and the, the overall kinetic chain, it does transfer over to a lot of uh, um, more, for lack of a better term, functional uh, activities. Yeah. It's, people um, do, are quite reluctant to use that word because I think it has been like bastardized over the years, but it, it, it serves a direct purpose, and especially with, because the squat is so, uh, the, sorry, the kettlebell movements are so primal in such as the, the, like the goblet squats, the deep squats that you're encouraged to do, um, that it does have a massive effect on the whole body in terms of performance like that. So you are improving the functionality. And one thing that I've um, I've looked at from the research on the on the Strong First website is you you work very closely with Gray Cook and his uh, screening systems, don't you? Absolutely. Uh, I also travel and teach for FMS myself, mm. uh, and and very familiar with the system. And um, you know, Gray originally got in, interested in Pavel's work because Pavel had put out uh, the book The Naked Warrior, mm. which was all about developing body weight strength via two moves: uh, the one arm push up and the single leg squat, the pistol. Mm. And so Gray looked at this immediately and said, you know, if you can do both of these moves um, equally on the right and the left. Uh, you probably have a pretty good uh, overall uh, movement ability and strength ability mm. between the two sides. And so five of the seven FMS screens give us a, an appraisal of right to left mm. uh, ability. And so Gray was all about having the ability to, within certain parameters, mm. uh, move uh, equally uh, and have equal performance on both sides. And that's uh, quotation marks and caveats over equal. 
Mm. Uh, we, we understand there's such thing as individual variation and dominant and non-dominant sides and all of that stuff. So yes. um, just put, put the quotation marks and take a grain of salt with that, that we, we certainly understand those, those things. So Gray became interested in, in the kettlebell as well because of its potential to assist, its, its ease of use and its uh, potential for assisting in, in not only correcting movement but in, increasing performance. Is it more so the fluidity as well? Because the um, when you're doing compound movements, you are ingraining a pattern. It's one thing that I stress to you know the clients and and um, anyone who's looking to improve strength is that the the motor pattern. This is actually stuff I got from Gray uh, five years ago when I first started reading stuff. But the motor pattern that you are ingraining is very very important because you don't want to add uh, strength to dysfunction. So it's the fluidity of the kettlebells is that you're learning a more natural movement pattern rather than being fixed in a squat or a deadlift. Yes, and the, to add to that, the rhythmical or cyclical nature of the lifts mm. um, enhances that as well. Um, the, the, the swing, for example, is a rhythmically repetitive uh, hip extension and force absorption redirection. Um, and you're doing that for X number of reps. You're sinking your breathing and your movement. Uh, there's there's a lot of different things happening there that give it uh, a lot of impact uh, through the body as a whole. Mm. And do you find from the your experience using the FMS, do you find any uh, differences in, in the way people move in isolation and the way they move in, in like a compound movement? Because sometimes you can find that they, they're – range of move motion is restricted so like in the single leg raise um, but then when it comes to do a squat they can sit down on the heels do, can you explain that phen- phenomenon sure um the well the squat and the hinge being different mm. uh and the leg raise being a little more specific to our ability to access the hips within a hip hinging pattern mm. uh the deep squat uh being uh just the way the hips knees and ankles and the um the I hate to use the, the core word, but the center, the midsection coordinate. Uh, and when you throw the arms into the picture, now we've got the T-spine involved and you know things of that nature. So the reasons you may do poorly on a, a something, a squat movement and or exercise may be different than the reasons that you perform poorly on a leg raise or hip hinging movement. Mm. So, um, which is, you know, the seven tests give us a better appraisal of, of how you're moving. And, and you, you will see people who, uh, when you stand them up in a squat, they compensate very well and mm. they manage to score two, uh, but they still have a one on something like uh, trunk stability push up or rotary to the, or active straight leg raise, like you said. So, um, the, things that i've learned over the years is i've i've learned just to trust the uh trust the screen and to look at things um don't don't make any assumptions no i've got all seven screens done and Mm -hmm. and just address whatever popped up as the uh the weakest link yes it's it's the most simplistic way of, of of approaching the situation isn't it the um from experience as a trainer and coach is that I, I'd probably say you see more people with bilateral discrepancies than you actually see someone who's symmetrical. What would your first port of call be when you do get someone who scores differently on the bilateral assessments? So the, uh, the algorithm we use within FMS is um, by pattern uh, instead of by score, right. uh, meaning we're going to go after the leg raise and the shoulder first, 
the rotary and the trunk stability next, and then the inline turtle step deep squat. Mm. Um, so going in order of pattern allows us to have some separation from because uh, we definitely run the screen by the numbers, so mm. to speak. You're going to end up with your threes, twos, ones, or zeros. Mm. Uh, but when I sit back and look at those results, I look at them by pattern first. And if the leg raise is a pair of ones or an asymmetry, mm. I start there. Mm. And so uh, having that difference in, in how we score versus how we run the algorithm um, is something that we've worked for quite, uh, quite a few years on uh, to, mm-hmm. to kind of refine that down to something we have good confidence in. Okay. And how much of mobility is CNS-based and how much is it soft tissue integrity? For the, the – I hate to put – numbers on it but i i would certainly say that uh the the number of people who have actual soft tissue adaptation that prevents their movement is lower uh on the scale Mm. than those people that have either a patterning issue that uh, presents a stiffness Mm. or a lack of stability Mm. that presents a stiffness so I, I do lean far more in the CNS direction as far as uh, mobility in general, um, but I may still start with some soft tissue techniques and things like that in order to crack the code there mm. on what they have going on. And sometimes it's learned perception because so if someone has the feeling of a, a lacrosse ball or a, or a foam roller on a, on a muscle, they perceive that it's, it's releasing or they're, they're being more aware of the area and that in turn kind of quote-unquote releases the area. But that's not actually a change in structural integrity of the muscle. It's purely the CNS has changed because there's been a different signaling. Would you say that's correct? It, from a general standpoint, yes. Mm. Um, I, and I think that you know the, the CNS rabbit hole uh, is, a, is a deep one. Mm. And from a soft tissue standpoint, you know, I, I think Myers and, and other people have kind of covered this well, that mm. uh, a lot of our self-imposed soft tissue techniques are not myofascial release. Mm. And they're not um, specific enough to be trigger point or you know things of that nature. But they are highly proprioceptive. Mm. And so to your point of just kind of learning more about the body mm. uh, from a patterning or uh, information standpoint, yeah. I look at foam rolling a lot of times as just kind of providing a lot more information to the bowl of gelatin about where the body is and, mm. and what specifically is going on. And most of your soft tissue techniques and the, the analogy I give when I teach and when I talk to people is if you ever had an Etch-A-Sketch as a kid mm. – and if you didn't, uh, you can go to YouTube, and now there's like 50 different Etch-a-Sketch apps that you can download, mm. and you can experience uh, the Etch-a-Sketch. Um, but when you have a picture on the screen, you don't like it, you just shake the Etch-a-Sketch, and you have the chance to draw a new picture. I think a lot of our soft tissue techniques are um, shaking the Etch-a-Sketch mm. so that we have the opportunity to put a new pattern in. Mm. And how much does... Um in my experience, I think a lot of mobility issues as well come from improper bracing patterns, which I think that the compound lifts, again, such as squats and deadlifts and the swing done properly um, have a massive effect on. Is that one of your foundational things is teaching how to breathe and brace properly from the beginning? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, breath is, is critical. Hmm. And uh, early on, you know, back in 2002, uh, when I was learning from Pavel, 
um, that was something that was uh, it's and continues to be immediately impactful to uh, both myself and the people that I that I train on an ongoing basis, uh, knowing how to sequence the breath. Uh, whether that's using a more anatomical style breathing for enhancing um, a stretch or a mobility drill, or whether that's the more biomechanical match uh, for bracing and in- improving strength and, and stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the crossover is the the breathing technique that I use to brace for a deadlift is not what I'm going to bring to a jump. Hmm. And so, you know, I want to be able to still, uh, you can look at some of McGill's current research on the, the quote, double pulse uh, sort of um, work that happens when uh, an elite fighter throws a punch or a kick. There's an initial pulse of power developed, and then there's this extreme relaxation that allows that power to get to its target. Hmm. And then there's another pulse of tension when you deliver the strike. Um, so, you know, we have to keep our athleticism Yet, part of being athletic in the gym is knowing how to hit this biomechanical uh, breathing match, this bracing, uh, so that we amplify our strength for things like squats and deadlifts and things like that. So it's a it's a, it's a nice continuum to uh, be able to surf. Because mm. um, in McGill's um, Ultimate Back Fitness, he speaks a lot about the importance of the back being both strong but and enduring, and especially the enduring the hip, um, the hip extension, the hip hinge, and that's what kettlebells provide, don't they? The, the especially the swing when done properly with the proper bracing pattern is going to improve that motor pattern and that breathing pattern that's going to help you increase the weights you lift in the deadlift. Absolutely. Uh, I've maintained a, a decent barbell deadlift over the years, uh, even though uh, 99% of my training is with kettlebell right now. Yeah. Uh, so it, it definitely has a, a big carryover. And in regards to the um, going back to Pavel's teachings, because I, I heard him recently or listened to recently to his, his interview on the Tim Ferriss show. What does he mean by um, a shit ton, basically, when he says uh, volume, you know, in terms of the f- sets of five with 70 percent? I'm a big fan of that idea, you know, the grease in the groove. But what type of, type of volume are you talking about there? Depends on the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're more hypertrophy oriented, we're obviously going to try to accumulate more uh, volume and flirt with a little bit of uh, fatigue. Mm. Um, notice I said fatigue, not failure. Mm. And if I'm uh, focused on strength, then I will accumulate, uh, depending, and at 70% uh, 1RM, we can accumulate a little more volume. Um, classic kind of five by five sort of routines would fit into more of the uh, strength building um, upwards of 10 by five if we're starting to look more uh, hypertrophy oriented and, and we can uh, at 70 percent you can you can accumulate a lot you look at some of the Russian powerlifting uh, uh, schools of thought where they bench seven times a week um, so they're accumulating uh, uh, over the course of that week. They're accumulating a lot of volume, uh, but they have very sharp differences in in that uh, volume per day and intensity per day. And um, what in in terms of raw strength is it is there any applicable um, is it applicable to test your max at any point, or is that something in the strong first, or is it more just about? I I would call it. I've described it in a recent um, article written. It's like you're tickling the nervous system. You want to show. You want to induce some levels of fatigue to a certain way, um, but you don't want to ever get to that point where you've completely shot the central nervous system with a max effort. How does that apply? Does that apply to the strong first uh, methodologies at all? 
Sure. Uh, I w- we, uh, you look at something like Grease the Groove or the mm-hmm. Fighter Pull-Up Program or um, the, the original Power to the People programming was uh, essentially two sets of five in the deadlift mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so a very low volume, but done very consistently. Um, you know, the, the greater, uh, and th- this was perhaps uh, misinterpretation of some of the West Side Barbell stuff with uh, max effort days and things like that. Um, max effort days were supposed to be done without uh, excitation. So mm-hmm. you were not sniffing ammonia and, you know, getting psyched for your attempt. Uh, those max attempts were done uh, really with a very calm uh, nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so being able to uh, express your strength in a, in, I'll just say a very calm way mm-hmm. uh, versus the bang your head on the bar and, you know, scream and sniff ammonia sort of stuff mm-hmm. um, and accumulating enough volume and, and that, uh, that that becomes a whole other interesting rabbit hole where our efforts within recovery have been focused on how much work we can do and still recover mm. versus what's the least I need to do to make progress. Mm. And that uh, and, and I strongly feel that the, the best recovery uh, technique is good programming. Yeah. Uh, listening to that uh, within your body and, and knowing that uh, you know while everybody else is happy at 150 reps of whatever exercise or 20 reps of whatever exercise, uh, you may only handle half of that, mm. but still make great progress. It's mm. it's all in the mix with the individual. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, it's in, in the strength sport and in, in longevity in terms of the barbell game, it's not about being a martyr of how hard you can train yourself. It's being an advocate of improving consistently, isn't it? And then some people may be able to progress from three sets of three where others might need 10 sets of five. It is, it's an individual process in a sense, isn't it? It really is. Um, I've When I was powerlifting, um, I would, uh, my last squat cycle was uh and i'm gonna butcher this name because i i barely speak english much less get russian pronunciations correct um ryabinyakov i I think was the name and uh, i ran one of his squat cycles and i had great success i i'm a squat addict and um it's that's a that's a lift that i really like doing consistently or used to and um so my volume for squatting was was fairly high, but my volume for deadlifting would be fairly low. Mm. Um, so I had a difference just in between lifts of, as far as the volume that I could tolerate uh, with within each of those. And uh, taking the time, uh, really having the patience to to find those those right levels um, are are key. Uh, the mistake I made, and I'm pretty sure we could pull most of the strength training world, and they would agree. Um, is quit trying to be strong yesterday and build your strength over time. Mm. Very true. That's probably one of the, um, you know, one of the outstanding messages that I want to give to people who who are training themselves or looking to get into training is that patience is the one of the mo- most important tools in putting five kilos on every six months. You know, is going to be very very um, useful in ten years time in a lift. I think um, the the rushing to get strong is is very um, is, is a very dangerous process because of the increase in injuries and increase of adding weight that you aren't able to handle at the time. Very much so. The, the our 
if you talk to somebody like Dr. Ed Thomas, who was uh, a physical educator and, and physical culture historian, mm. um, training used to be based around um, some some central uh, tenets, and one of those being precision. Mm. Um, and we've kind of lost that. Um, quality has has gone uh, down, uh, and as we work in, and I see this a lot. Uh, we work into this mindset that the kettlebell went up or the barbell went up, so I must have done it well. Mm. And those don't necessarily correlate, or we watch YouTube videos of max attempts, and we think, well, that's how they train all the time. And no, Mm. hopefully not. They're training, you know, that was a max attempt where they did what they needed to to get the weight up. Hopefully in training, we're being a little more mindful of, of the quality of what we're doing. Mm, absolutely and from from your powerlifting days would you agree that um a very important piece of advice would be to that the deadlift and squat very very rarely increase at the same time so you in a 12 or 16 week block it'd be much advisable to look at which one needs the most work and then maintain one while improving the other or do you think it is possible to increase pounds on both lists at the same time uh, it really depends on where your weak links are. Uh, I added uh, pretty uh, – let's see. I added roughly 20, 25 pounds to my deadlift during that squat cycle I referred mm. to, uh, but I did very little deadlifting. Mm. Um, I Bumping my squat uh, allowed me to pull more. Mm. So uh, there was a similarity in, in my hip action between the two that allowed me to have some good uh, good carryover and so really depends on you know what's your squat style what's your deadlift style what are your body dimensions where's your weak links mm. and sometimes you'll see more carryover focusing on one than the other uh, so that that's highly highly individual and that that is always the interesting thing is if you push your bench hard enough to make some bench increases, it's hard to squat a lot because the positioning of the bar and the stress on the shoulders can mm. make grumpy shoulders for your bench work. Mm. And the overall CNS stress of a deadlift or a squat can hamper one or the other. So um, how, how you mix those for the individual is always the key to great uh, coaching and programming. Mm. Okay, well, since I've got you here and you're a very um, experienced squat and highly squat advocate, um, what would you say your cues would be for a perfect squat? Now, I am aware that somebody's biomechanics and training age do come into this, but foundational-wise, how what do you look for when someone's squatting? So, um, if we're talking, I'm going to separate that into two different uh, sets of, of, of advice because mm-hmm. if I'm doing a kettlebell front squat, for mm-hmm. example. Um, that's an extremely different movement than a low bar powerlifting back squat. Mm-hmm. And then the high bar more clo- more closely related to the kettlebell front squat um, versus the high low bar mm-hmm. uh, back squat. For low bar back squat, uh, there's a couple, couple keys. Um, establishing the correct stance. Uh, angle of the feet, the the all of that stuff, wedging yourself underneath the bar, mm. establishing that really strong uh, shelf for the bar to sit on, and I, I focus on keeping the bar. Um, I 
hinge and squat, the low bar being a, a combo of those two movements, so that I keep the, the, the bar over my feet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I try to center with the bar, understanding that the low bar back position creates this hybrid hinge squat position. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a kettlebell front squat, I'm centering straight down with the weight. There's no hinge. There's a p- direct pull into the hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, and the goblet squat and, and things like that form a, a tremendous foundation for the kettlebell front squat or a little bit for the high bar back squat for the low bar squat. Um, really nailing that wedge and that shelf for the bar and having that mindset of the bar going straight up and down over your feet mm. and you're hinging appropriately to keep it there um, are, are big keys within those two different uh, squats. Which is what I would say the three most important things about a lift, which is bar line, bar line, bar line. Which is, which is <laughs> I, I like that. To, yeah, which is why I say to people is that the bar wants to be dissecting the foot the entire time. And really the, the most important thing about being a good coach or strength coach is getting someone with the to have their structural integrity and the movement capability to maintain the line. That's all it's about really, in my opinion, um, is keeping that bar in the right position on both phases of the movement. Uh, it's it's a great mindset, and I, I think that the, um, the we know from a and I'm going to just say from we know mm. from a mechanical perspective, mm. the fewer moving parts, the better. Mm. It, if I really feel like I'm sitting back into my squat, the bars traveling straight down, straight up, and I you know the hip action is what pulls it over my feet on the way down and pushes it back up on the way up. I have a very simple. Uh, mechanics uh, mm. to think about or develop yeah obviously there's more going on than that but if i can simplify it to myself it's it's you know uh, simplifying something like a golf swing down to you know one two mm. <laughs> back yeah. swing for follow through um fewer moving parts the better so the the focus on bar path and, and keeping that efficient is excellent mm, definitely um, well, yeah, I appreciate very much um, your time for coming on and speaking about the kettlebell. And we've gone down the lifting route, the compound movements uh, more so. Um, can you just give us a brief explanation of the RKC or anything that Strong First has, has coming up either in the US or the UK? So, um, no, no more RKC. Oh, uh, there, well, there is, yeah. but not not what I'm associated okay. with or what Pavel's doing uh, at this point. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Claire Booth is mm-hmm. our uh, UK mm-hmm. Strong First representative. Mm-hmm. Uh, might be somebody for a future podcast. She has mm-hmm. a tremendous background in bodybuilding, actually, mm-hmm. uh, and was part of the the UK national bodybuilding team. And mm-hmm. uh, she's now our representative uh, for Strong First within the UK. And we have other instructors mm-hmm. uh, throughout the country. And um, if you check the Strong First website, you'll see upcoming courses and uh, certifications. And uh, Claire and her her group are, are doing a great job with uh, promoting Strong First. Mm. Uh, within the UK and and moving us forward there. Oh, brilliant! And have you been to? Are you uh, planning on ever traveling to the UK yourself? I have been. I was actually there in February really? uh, for a, what we call a foundational strength workshop, which is a combination of strong first and kettlebells and FMS and movement screening and corrective exercise and how to how those worlds kind of blend and and work together. So uh, yeah, I was there in February and um, uh, always have a good time. Uh, in in the uk 
Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking time out and giving us insight into Pavel's methods, your own methods, and some very, very, very good information on uh, movement and uh, and especially strengthening the compound movements, Brett. So thank you very much for your time. Absolutely, Chris. Great uh, to have the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. And uh, uh, if I can ever be of assistance in the future, please let me know. Oh, definitely. Thank you very much, mate. You got it. Thank you. Thank you.